Welcome to Across the Street, your one-stop shop for all things inpatient medicine at the Durham VA, from faculty and staff who know it and love it just as much as you do. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Across the Street. I'm very pleased today to be speaking to Dr. Katya Elbert Avila about the CLC here at our very own Durham VA. For those of you that have not had the chance to meet Dr. Elbert Avila yet, she is the medical director of our CLC, and she's also an associate professor in Duke's Division of Geriatric Medicine. She's also the associate program director for the Geriatric Fellowship, and she's on the ethics board at the Durham VA. Welcome, Dr. Elbert Avila. Thank you for being here. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. Yeah. Uh, When did you uh, start your role as medical director of the CLC? Gosh, I think it was June of 2020. Oh, wow. So right in the middle of COVID. Yeah, right in the start middle of COVID. (laughs) So you really handled like all of that. (laughs) That was trial by fire. It has kept things interesting, I'm sure. Yeah. yeah, well, thank you for walking our entire institution through that, because I know that everybody listening has interacted with the CLC at some point, and COVID has made things certainly more complicated. What we're hoping to do today is get an get an overview of the CLC itself, what it does for our veterans, and how we should interact with it. Tell us a little bit, Dr. Alberta Villa, just about the CLC and what services it provides. Yeah, so um, so CLC stands for Community Living Center, and it's probably basic, but it's the VA Skilled Nursing Facility. And so the services provided by CLCs range across different facilities in the country. Our CLC provides short-term rehab services, short-term skilled nursing services, so essentially post-acute short-term services. And which veterans are eligible for care at the CLC? So any veteran who's enrolled in the system is eligible for care in the CLC as far as short-term services. To be eligible for the VA to cover long-term care, there's a service-connected eligibility requirement. So veterans have to be either service connected for the condition for which they require the long-term care or at least 70% service connected or I think 60% in unemployable. You know, I I would encourage everybody who's listening uh, in Durham to go visit the CLC if you haven't seen it already because it really is beautiful and it's very uniquely tailored to the veteran. So Dr. Elbert Avila, can you tell us a little bit about why a veteran might particularly like the experience at the CLC as compared to a different skilled nursing facility? Well, I think, I mean, as part of the VA health system in general, the entire interdisciplinary team at the CLC is committed to providing veteran-centered care, and we all share the same values and missions as most folks who work at the VA. And in addition, a lot of our leadership team are veterans themselves. So our current chief nurse, Derek Brown, is a veteran. Two of our nurse managers are veterans. One of our chaplains is a veteran. Some of the nursing staff are veterans themselves. And I think that also the veterans, when we have group activities, depending on our COVID stage, enjoy the camaraderie of having interactions with other veterans. As part of our veteran-centric care, on admission, the nursing staff interviews veterans to complete an all about me form, and that's posted in their room. And part of that includes some of their service history. It's meant as a conversation starter, and so staff have ways to connect with veterans and know some of their interests. That's another way to that we, with the, we honor people's service. Yeah, I love that. It's very on-brand for the VA as an institution to take the uniqueness of the veterans and incorporate that into their healthcare. I love that. 
Another aspect, I think, are the mental health services available here. So for people who do have PTSD, providers in the VA and staff in the VA have a little bit more training in that area. And we have access to mental health services here. We have a part-time psychologist that works with the CLC as well as access to the psychiatry consult service. So that's another, another thing that we offer for veterans as well. Yeah, that's awesome. I mean, when I have the choice to send a patient to a CLC or the CLC, I absolutely take it because I know that they have an incredible experience when they're there. I also know that it's competitive to get into the CLC sometimes. So could you talk a little bit about how admissions to the CLC get decided? Yeah, and I think to speak a little bit on the competitiveness, I think I should comment on our small size. So we are tiny. Um, it, this CLC was initially opened in 1989 as a 120-bed facility. And then there have been changes over the years, and now we have a maximum of 64 beds. Of that, 10 of those are hospice beds. So 10 of those are beds in the inpatient hospice unit. And then those 54 beds were further reduced with COVID and isolation requirements of having to isolate people after admission, also isolation for multi-drug resistant organisms. So that was reduced even further. So with existing long-stay residents who either were admitted for long-term care or proved difficult or impossible to discharge with existing long-stay residents. That meant the proportion of our long-stay residents increased. So we really have a majority of long-stay residents and just very, very few short-stay rehab-type beds to work with. And the mission nationally of the entire GEC is to transition the CLCs from providing sort of low-level long-term custodial care to providing a post-acute transition and post-acute short-term services. One of the things that we're very careful about is whether, whether there is a goal for us to meet a service we can provide that will return the person to independent living, that will result in a successful community discharge. We look very carefully at what is the goal for the rehab, for example, or wound care, is that something that's achievable in a short stay, which we consider less than 90 days. And if accomplished, will the person then be able to return successfully to the community? Or is this somebody who has a progressive disease and is very frail and was failing at home and may benefit from some rehab, but ultimately is going to need placement for long-term care? That is one of the things that we screen carefully for. Sure. So the mission really of the CLC is to help transition veterans out of this building and back home. Exactly. Yeah. So, so that's helpful to know. So maybe when we're consulting the CLC, we should be really directive about what our goals are for this veteran and what they, we hope them to accomplish when they're at the CLC. That's exactly right. So I'll talk a little bit about the process. We have a screening committee, an admissions coordinator, and she looks at all the new consults. She reviews the chart carefully, nursing notes, progress notes, medications, labs, orders. She is looking, first of all, if we can meet the person. So the first level is, do we have an appropriate bed? So if the only bed we have open needs to be a MRSA negative person because the bathroom shared with another MRSA negative person, 
um, and this person's MRSA positive, she'll know we don't have an appropriate bed. Then we need to be able to meet the person's nursing needs. And so she'll look to see whether the person is needing a personal care attendant, for example. Are they needing you know, sort of one-on-one supervision. Do they have a bed alarm? We can't use bed alarms because it's considered a restraint in a nursing home setting. She will interview the person. She'll interview the nursing staff and get a sense of whether the nursing needs could be met. We had a recent consult. The person was on Q4-hour antibiotics. And so she checked with the nurse managers, is this something with the current staffing that we can do? And the answer, unfortunately, was no. So very basic first step is, can we take care of this person safely? Are they in elopement risk? So we're very, very, very careful because we don't have a locked unit about screening for the potential for elopement risk. Then the next step is the person medically and and psychiatrically stable. One thing that helps, I think, is if in the medical progress note, there is an explanation, like the white count is climbing, it's due to this, we know this, this is, there's no other intervention needed. That helps actually to clarify there are medical concerns or if something's noise, I don't know how I would term that. So if there's something that we think might potentially delay discharge, but we're not actually medically concerned about it, we should be really deliberate in putting that in our note to explain our thought process for why we think it's still appropriate for this person to be discharged. Yeah, if you see anything that might be a red flag, ex- explain it. I think along those lines too, making sure that somebody is stable before we're consulted, it doesn't help to consult us early. We don't do contingent acceptances. We had tried that before with our small number of beds that doesn't work. And so we decide, is this person ready for admission tomorrow, the next day? Potentially on a Friday, that might be a Monday, but typically it's the next day. So is this person, we have a bed now, are they ready for admission tomorrow? And if they're not, we decline and move on. And so I think waiting till the person is truly ready is helpful as well. So some of the barriers that I know I've personally run into are things like loose bowel movements or COVID precautions that are really specific. You know, how much of those rules come from our local decision making and how much come from national decision making? I know that some of the COVID restrictions weren't up to us. They were up to others. Yeah. So a lot of the COVID things, last two years, there were so many and it kept changing. A lot of those were national directives that we had a national directive of what the CLC will follow as far as COVID regulations. And they were quite detailed and we followed those. And sometimes they followed CDC and CMS guidance, and sometimes they did not. So we currently have a national directive that new admissions be isolated in a private room for seven days and then tested for COVID. The CDC guidance is really for unvaccinated new admissions. So some of that is national guidance. Some of things like loose bowel movements is more local. So that would be potentially if there was a concern that someone had diarrhea and was this with had C. diff and rolled out because we don't want to see diff outbreak on our unit. And we're very careful, particularly with potentially with communicable diseases that we're not going to affect our current residents. So it's really about preventing outbreaks, because even though it's a small community, it's close relatively in proximity, and we don't Mm -hmm. want something to make everybody who's there sick. And our design, this goes back to the design in 1989, was 
really, I think, for a lower acuity population. So they're double rooms with a shared Jack and Jill bathroom in between. And that is how we cohort. So if we had someone positive for a C. diff, we would have to, you know, move them into a room that didn't share a bathroom or move, you know, somebody out so that they weren't sharing the bathroom with someone who did not have C. diff. So I think some of that are limitations of our design and how we cohort people. That gets back to like, if you have an explanation for, if she sees diarrhea in the nursing notes and if the screening coordinator sees diarrhea in the nursing notes, and I say she, it just currently happens to be a woman. And then there's nothing in the progress notes about it. She'll be worried about the potential for C. diff. If though there is something in the progress note that says C. diff was ruled out they're, or they're not, they're loose, but not liquid. And therefore we're not worried about it because of these reasons, then that's a different story. Yeah. It's helpful to know the context for where the decisions are coming from, because it helps us prepare for when we're trying to get someone mm-hmm. to the CLC, what boxes we need to check. So let's say that our patient has been accepted and they're in the CLC now. What kinds of things can they expect to do there? What services does the CLC offer? I imagine it depends on the reason for their admission. We have an interdisciplinary team. So it's myself, and then our other providers are nurse practitioner, licensed independent providers. So their primary provider will be an NP, and they will mostly see their care will be directed by an NP while they're here. Other members of our team include social workers, so they'll be seen by social work, and they do help us facilitate discharge planning if a higher level of care is ultimately needed. Specialized nursing services, we have resident assessment coordinators, as does any field nursing facility, restorative nursing staff. We have a specialized wound care team. So we have a nurse and a nurse practitioner with specialization in wound care, chaplain services. We have clinical pharmacists that work with us and help with medication reconciliation. We have a part-time psychologist. As far as what services they will get depends on the reason for their admission. So if they're coming for rehab, they would be expected to participate with physical therapy and occupational therapy. And of course, everyone is seen by recreation therapy. Depending on our COVID state, which fluctuates quite a bit, those rec therapy activities may be one-on-one or virtual, or there may be group activities. I mean, it sounds like a lot of fun, honestly. I'm convinced that the CLC is an amazing place for my my veteran patients to go and get their rehab. Dr. Albert Avila, do you have any tips for us that we haven't already covered to make the process as smooth as possible to get our patients into the CLC. Our admissions coordinator, her name is Tiffany Moore. And so reaching out to her, if there's something that the team feels needs explanation is is always available. I'm available and I'm usually available to answer questions about a consult decision or if someone doesn't agree or has concerns with the decision. So I think it's important to realize the difference in perspective. Our goal is, particularly right now, is to have acute rehab that's short-term, that's a bridge to home. Our quality indicators include successful discharge to the community, no ED visits or hospitalizations after they come to either after they come to us or within 30 days of discharge 
to us. Yeah, um, that, that's helpful. Occasionally, we do admit patients who came from the CLC. Is there a different process to getting those patients back to the CLC? That is a, yeah, that is a different process. That doesn't require a new consult. We do not discharge those folks. Right now, they are considered absent sick in hospital. We hold their bed. And all that is required for them to come back is that the team page, the geriatric fellow or myself, whoever is signed on to the geriatric day call pager in Spock. And so page the fellow or me and um, tell us that they're ready to come back and there may be some discussion. We may or may not agree depending on our knowledge of what services and nurse monitoring we have here. And then we take them back as quickly as we can. Is, um, there, a, is there a limit to how long the bed gets held? Currently, we're holding the beds for 30 days. And that's that's how it is right now. It's possible that things may change in the future and we'll stay tuned. <laughs> that's how it is right now, exactly. Okay, exactly. great. And any other wisdom that you wanna impart about the CLC before we wrap up? Not particularly about the CLC. I think about discharges to post-acute care in general. There's a great opinion piece or perspective piece in New England Journal called Rehab to Death from 2019, Lynn, Lynn Flint. And it presents a case, and then she did a, a subsequent piece in JAGS about the same topic, and also in 2019. And I think it illustrates this case really well about the terminology we use and the expectations we set with our patients and that often very frail medically complex people who have progressive disease are discharged to post-acute care for sort of quote-unquote rehab when it it is really more likely to be, it's unlikely or improbable that they're going to regain their former function and return home. And it's one more transition point in a cycle of nursing home to hospital, back to nursing home. And to have honest communication with people, to treat it like a serious illness discussion, to treat it as a time-limited trial. We may accept somebody for rehab that had a hospitalization that has advanced malignancy and wants to improve their functional status so that they can receive further chemotherapy. And we may think, well, this, this was an acute illness, an acute setback, you know, give it a chance and see. It's helpful if they come with the understanding that this is a trial and they have serious disease and it may get worse. We have so many people that we talk to on admission that have unrealistic expectations and very simplistic understanding of where they are in their disease process and what rehab services can offer. And their understanding is that they're here to get stronger because that's how it was posed to them. And I think being as, as honest and as realistic in those conversations as possible is helpful to everyone on both ends to, to help with that transition and that continuity of care. Yeah, thank you so much for that perspective. And for the residents listening, we'll link a copy of the PDF of that perspective, Rehabbed to Death, that Dr. Alberta Villa mentioned in your curriculum website. So if you want to read that piece, you can go find the link there and the JAGS article as well. Dr. Alberta Villa, this was such an eye-opening conversation. Thank you so much for talking to me about this today. Thank you.
Yeah, so obviously she's very generous with her time. So if anybody has any questions, Dr. Alberta Villa, you can find her on Teams or the geriatric pager if she's carrying it. So, <laughs> and uh, so thank you again. And as always, the views and opinions expressed today are our own and do not necessarily reflect.